We'll be wrapping up uh, chapter 2 in our Confessions. We've been looking at the doctrine of God, or what we could call theology proper. Uh, we've looked over the last several weeks at the, the three paragraphs that are found in chapter 2 in our, our Confession. If you don't have a copy of the Confession with you, you grab one of the blue Trinity hymnals out of the, the seat, and in the very back of that, uh, somewhere around page 670, somewhere in there, uh, you'll find, not hymn number, but page number in the back, you'll find a copy of our confession. And we're in chapter 2 that's entitled, Of God and the Holy Trinity. And so what we've been meditating upon the last several weeks has, has been, obviously, weighty uh, subject matter. Uh, when we're thinking and meditating and, tr- and, and seeking to articulate from the Scriptures what God says about Himself, about His very being, about His essence, about His nature, we end up in the realm of the incomprehensible. It, it is not something that our finite, creaturely human minds can grasp. So as we have said repeatedly, it is, it is right to say that we may apprehend God uh, we may describe him as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, but we cannot comprehend him. Uh, it is as if we walked up to a very, very, very large tree, and we cannot wrap our, rams, our arms around that tree. We cannot comprehend it, but we can stand back and admire it and, and, and apprehend it in that way. Now, that analogy breaks down very quickly, you know, because the tree is still finite, even as large and majestic as it might be. It is finite. Our God is not. And so what, what, our, what I want to do today is look at, to give our attention mostly to the very last phrase in paragraph 3 in our Confession of Faith. It says this, uh, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. That's a wonderful statement. It's a profound statement. And it's one that, that I commend to you to just chew on it a little bit. Meditate upon it. This doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is one and three, is the foundation of all of our communion with God, of all of our participation with Him, of all of our fellowship with Him, and our comfortable dependence upon Him. So let's call upon this great God and ask for his Spirit's help that we might know him as he truly is. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks that you have made yourself known. We confess that our our minds are limited. There is no defect, no deficiency in your revelation to us, and yet, but we are not able uh, fully to comprehend you as you really are. Now we pray for the grace uh, to understand what you have given to us in the pages of your word that we can describe accurately, faithfully, and comfortably that which you have made known about yourself. May your saints be built up and edified uh, by the truth of who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, but one, in whom we have blessedness and life and eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You'll turn with me to the Great Commission as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at the last 
five verses of Matthew's Gospel. Here we have the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we have the revelation, the testimony, the command of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ. Here is the risen Christ. I said risen and exalted. It's, it's not, he's about to be exalted and ascended to heaven. He's, he's been glorified. He's risen from the grave and he stands before his disciples, and notice, they, they worship him, which was an absolutely appropriate response. He is God of God, light of light, God and very God. And also, his command to them, this great commission, having been given all authority on heaven and earth, he, he commands them to go and make disciples of all nations. And notice what he says baptizing them in the name of God. In the name of God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a Trinitarian command. Scott Swain has written a really helpful little book. Uh, if you're interested in further study on this, it's simply called The Trinity, an Introduction. And, and it is, in fact, only an introduction uh, I don't know that you'll find very many books on the Trinity that are less than 150 pages, uh, but it is not overly technical. Uh, it's very accessible, and I would commend it to you. And he was helpful to me kind of meditating particularly on the, the importance of the Great Commission and this command of Trinitarian baptism. And notice, first of all, that the name here, Jesus says, to baptize in the name. He doesn't say names. That's very important. There's one name. It's singular. It's not plural. So what, what Jesus is saying here is that God, in his triunity, is one. And he is the only true God. He is the only sovereign. You know, the Bible is honest with us that men have created all kinds of, of gods and all kinds of religions that worship all manner of idols and images and lowercase, I'll use the air quotes, gods, lowercase g, gods. And as we several uh, last year looked at the book of Judges, for example, we saw as, they were, as God's people were about to go into the promised land, God warned them over and over and over again to not participate in the worship of the gods of the Canaanites. The book of Deuteronomy is replete with commands of God through Moses saying, do not go after their gods. And yet, again and again, the scriptures proclaim that these so-called gods are no gods at all. They're figments of men's imaginations. They're, they're the product of, of the craftsmanship of men's own hands, of wood and, and uh, 
silver or gold or bronze or whatever the, the medium might be. So for example, in Jeremiah 2 verse 11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? See, the Bible says, in fact, he mocks them. God mocks those who would claim to be gods. In Isaiah 37 verse 18, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are—they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. See, they weren't gods at all. In 1 Corinthians, even in the New Testament, we see this same acknowledgement that there are fictitious, or there are recognized gods, but they are no gods at all. And so 1 Corinthians 8, in verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are, are all things and through whom we exist. There's one God. Psalm 95, verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So what we find in the Old Testament, we find it in the New Testament, is that there are inventions of men's minds, imaginations that purport to be gods. In fact, men even ascribe power to them, authority to them. But one of the things that always is true is that the nature of, of the true and living God, the nature of our triune God is wholly different from the so-called gods who are created things. In Galatians 4, verse 8, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that, listen to this, that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, See, by nature, they are not gods. And I, and I think about it, I'm just, it's just coming to my mind, it's not in my notes, but that, that famous scene with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And remember, Elijah says to the, to the prophets of Baal, you go first. You, you build the altar, you put the wood on there, and call upon your god, call upon Baal to set fire to this. And, and you remember how the story goes. All day long, they're calling out, they're cutting themselves, and, and Elijah begins to taunt them. Is your god... Is he asleep? Has he gone on a journey? Is he in the bathroom? I mean, he's, he's mocking them because their gods had human natures. They had human-like natures. They were not infinite. They were not omnipotent. They were om not omniscient. In fact, as, as Elijah proved, their god could neither hear, nor speak, nor act. And what we've been studying over the last few weeks is this very nature of God. And what we see is the contrast between the nature of, of Yahweh, the nature of the true God, and the nature of all these so-called gods. We've been looking at a God's being, his whatness, you know, the, the stuff of God, which is incomprehensible. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 14, there's a very interesting account here of, that happened on the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 14, we see this beginning at verse 8. Paul and Barnabas have come to a city named Lystra, Lystra, 
And this was a pagan, very, very pagan place. And at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, the, the, the pages of Scripture are, are, uh, don't give us every word, every detail, but by the Spirit's power, we, we, can, we can imagine these scenes. And it's not so hard for us, I guess now, for us to imagine being in a very pagan, secular um, environment that claims to be religious, but does not honor the true and living God. And what if you are at some sort of major event where there's a large crowd in downtown Houston? Or you're at something like the rodeo, which draws thousands and thousands of people from all walks of life. And as often is the case, at places like that, there might be a man out preaching on the street or something like that. And then you see a man, genuinely, stand up and walk. He's been crippled from birth. What do you think the response would be from the crowd? Obviously, some would be skeptical, unbelief. But in this case, this is a small enough place. They knew this man. They knew his family. They knew he had never walked. And they, this was not a Benny Hinn revival. This was, this was a true miracle. And look what happened. And the crowds, verse 11, saw that what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, which is the local language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness, even with these words. They scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to him. You see what's happening here. The, the pagans responded as pagans are wont to do. They, they were wanting to give glory to this miracle, for this miracle, to gods that they've created in their own minds. But what does Paul say to them? He says, we are men, the ESV, I'm reading from the ESV, and most of the modern translations unhelpfully translate it this way. We also are men of like nature with you. But the older translations do a better job. The King James, for example, says, we also are men of like passions with you. The, the Greek word there, for you who like to know these things, it's homoepathis, or pathis. You hear that word pathis, which is pathos, 
we get our Greek word passion or our English word passions from that word. You may recall that in paragraph two or paragraph one of the chapter that we've been studying, that God is a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions. See those those kinds of of of, of passions in which an out, an external force causes a change within you is a human creaturely quality. And in the pagan world, their gods would get angry with them if they didn't offer the certain sacrifice. God would, their gods would, would respond to them in humanly kind of ways, even sinfully human kinds of ways. And what Paul says here, his, his teaching to the crowd is, we are men of like passions with you. We share the same kind of, of passions, the same kind of limited creaturely nature that you do, and by the way, that your gods have. Your gods, which are no gods at all, Zeus or Hermes or whatever you want to call them, they are no different ultimately than you are. But the God that we proclaim is not that God. He is different in his nature from that God. And Paul, I think this is uh, helpful for us as we think about uh, evangelism and, and personal witnessing, he mentions here, he doesn't start immediately with Christ. He starts with creation. He starts with natural law. And he says, this is the God who's, who's, who's demonstra- demonstrated his goodness to you. He's given himself a witness by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Creation testifies that this God is a good God. He is not like the gods that you've made in your mind. This is a good God. But he also says he is the God who's made everything. He's created the heavens and the earth. He's created all human beings. So God's nature, Paul says, is wholly unlike humanity. It's, it's unlike any so-called God, so-called God who's really no God at all. Our God alone possesses the perfections that we've been studying, the perfections like immutability and immortality and omniscience and omnipotence and, and the things that, that no creature could share. God alone can bear the name of Yahweh. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of names that are ascribed to God, and many of those names are ascribed to other gods as well, with an acknowledgement that they're not, they're not true gods. But God's covenant name, God's name Yahweh, is reserved for him and for him alone. There is no God that can be called Yahweh. There's only one. Because he alone is self Existent. In Psalm 145, in verse 21, the psalmist proclaims, My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and forever. And as we've seen here, as we've looked through chapter 2 in our confession of faith, that, that God is identical to His attributes. He is identical to His perfections. So it's why we can say, With the Apostle John, God is love. God doesn't possess love. He doesn't contain love. He doesn't display love. He is love. And in the same way, he is identical to all of his attributes. God is not divisible into parts. We've talked about this. 
We don't make a composite. It's not like a puzzle piece where we've got this puzzle piece over here of God's mercy and his love and his wrath and his benevolence and his goodness and his immutability and his immortality. We put all those puzzle pieces together and we form God. No, that's not how God has made himself known to us. God is not divisible into his parts. He is most pure act. He is love. He is wrath. He is mercy. He is gentleness. He is immortality. Scott Swain puts it this way. He says, the name Yahweh signifies God's self-identity, or, we've been talking about this word, his simplicity. God is identical with his existence and his attributes. From age to age, he is the self-same, eternal, and unchanging. The name Yahweh also signifies God's self-determination to accomplish his sovereign purpose, unrivaled in the face of his enemies, and to demonstrate his unbounded sovereign goodness in maintaining steadfast love and faithfulness toward unworthy sinners. This is the name of the Lord according to the Lord. See, that name Yahweh is identical to all of his attributes. The name Yahweh, the name Lord, is, is translated Kyrios in the New Testament. And in the older Greek translations of the Old Testament, what we know is the Septuagint, uh, the, the, the Bible that the Greek Bible that the apostles often quoted from was the Greek version of the Old Testament. And in that Greek version of the Old Testament, the, the name Yahweh was translated with the Greek word. Kurios. We listened recently to a lecture in our home from R.C. Sproul. It was very helpful to me thinking through a familiar passage. If you turn with me to Philippians 2, we're going to come back in a moment to the Great Commission, by the way. But in Philippians chapter 2, In verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, ask yourself, what name has been bestowed upon Jesus here? The, the verse continues. <clears throat> God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At what name does every creature bow? Be curious. See, what are we tempted to think? It's Jesus. Well, Jesus was his given name. That was his birth name. But God in his ex but in his exaltation, God has given him a new name. The name Curios. Yahweh. Jesus is God. Um, I said this was 
a point that Dr. Sproul brought out that was just so very helpful to me thinking about, again, a familiar passage. But now let's go back to the Great Commission. <clears throat> Return to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus commands here in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. What name? The name of the triune God, Yahweh, who is Father, Son, and the Spirit. Jesus equates the name of God to the three persons of the Trinity. So do you see, even the Great Commission is Trinitarian. Now, incidentally, <clears throat> coincidentally, and, and I, you, know, you know me well enough to know, you know I'm not smart enough to do this, to plan this ahead of time. But we're looking today at the baptism of Christ, the baptism of Jesus in our sermon, which is one of the most profoundly Trinitarian texts in the Bible. Um, and as we think today in Sunday school and meditate upon this idea, this confession that we make, that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation, it's the foundation of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon Him. Let us notice at the Great Commission itself that Jesus commands that there be a Trinitarian proclamation and a Trinitarian union acknowledged by his people. And Swain argues here that this name into which we must be baptized is equivalent to Yahweh. It's equivalent to Kurios. Listen to Swain. If the name is a reference to God's proper name, Yahweh, then according to Matthew, the holy name of the Lord, the name that signifies above all other names the uniqueness of the one God, belongs to these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are the one God. See, from the very beginning of a Christian's walk with the Lord, he is united to, indeed, he's united into the fullness of the Godhead. See, we're, we're tempted to think, and, and even in the language that we use, we come to faith in Christ, and that's a right way of describing that. But when we come to faith in Christ, it is not only to Christ, not only to the second person of the Trinity, that we become into communion. It's the full measure of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. From the very beginning, our entire, our entire salvation and relationship with God depends upon His triune essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I mean, there is no gospel. There is no power in the gospel apart from a triune work of God. If you'll turn over to, Mar to, to Romans and, and one of the most frequently quoted passages in Paul's letter to the Roman church is in Romans 1. It's a glorious text. In Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Who is this God? 
Paul's not speaking of God the Father only. He's speaking of God triune. And that's why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And, and Paul's speaking of salvation comprehensively. Not only the power to cause you to be born again, which is the work of the Spirit, according to the merits of Christ, by the decree of the Father, but comprehensively. The power of the gospel is also the same power by which you are sanctified. Adopted as sons. Adopted as daughters. Enabled by the Spirit's power to cry out, Abba, Father. Grafted in to the family of God. The same power of this gospel is the power by which you are preserved. Certainly and infallibly until either your own death or the Lord's return, at which point you are glorified. And a promise laid upon you at your, at your salvation, at your justification, that one day you will be raised up and will have a body of like same nature as Christ's glorified body. The power of God and the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is necessarily triune. So this is why we come back to our, our confession. This is why we say the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God. If God is not triune, we have no fellowship with Him. If God is not triune, we have no communion with Him. We have no unity with Him. But in our triune Godhead, we see the, 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 the glory of God working out our salvation according to the eternal decree of God the Father who sends the Son to accomplish that work of redemption, which is then applied to us in time and for eternity by the power of the Spirit. It ought to be a wonderful encouragement to our souls as, as to see this triune work of God in our redemption. And as you, in your own reading, in your own study of the Scriptures, uh, in your family worship time, in your private devotions, train your mind, tune your mind to see God's triune work, and, and watch how it encourages your soul uh, to see how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in unity. Not, not divided, but as one God, which is why Jesus could say we are to be baptized in the singular name of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And that is the foundation of our communion with God, and the foundation of our comfortable dependence upon Him. And we see this throughout the New Testament, and here, notably, in the Great Commission. So we turn back now to one more time to Matthew 28. I'm going to read the whole paragraph again, and, and notice the, the importance of a Trinitarian understanding. Now to, the 11, to the, now to the 11 disciples, or now the 11 disciples, went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Here is the Son rightly worshipped as God. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given to him by whom? God the Father. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Baptizing them into Yahweh, into Kurios. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. By what power does this teaching take place? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only only is, is the teaching go forth with power, but the content of the teaching came from where? The Holy Spirit. Working through the apostles. We, we, have, we have a complete, sufficient record of all that, that God intended for us to have about the work of Christ. Jesus told his disciples just prior to his crucifixion that after my departure, I will send a comforter to you who will lead you into all truth. And of course we saw, we know in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people. And from that point on, those disciples, those apostles who had just just hours before been timid, just, just a month before, had been so weak that they betrayed Jesus. They fearfully ran and fled. And now, by the power of the Spirit, we see immediately in chapter 3, Peter, who once betrayed Christ, is now bold, imprisoned, taking beatings for the sake of Christ. And then we we are told by Luke that Peter went away glad that he was counted worthy of being persecuted for the sake of the name. By, By what means? By the power of the Spirit. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the eternal decree of God the Father. So this is why uh, we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God. Uh, we, we, have no, we have no communion with God himself, apart from God being triune. We have no, no, no means, uh, no, no opportunity to be truly dependent upon God, apart from him being triune. So, let us not fall into um, kind of an anti-intellectual trap that says something like this. Well, the Trinity is really complex. The Trinity is incomprehensible. Therefore, I'll just leave that to the experts. I'll just leave that to those who are in the seminaries or those who are theologians by vocation, and I won't worry my pretty little head about such matters. Um, Dear Christian, uh, the, the Trinity is a doctrine for you. It's a doctrine for every Christian. Uh, the, the, to use the old language, the meanest of saints, meaning the, the weakest, the littlest of saints. The doctrine of the Trinity is a blessed balm to your soul. Uh, may it be an encouragement to you. And, I, and as you read and study, um, condition yourself, train yourself uh, to see these themes, to see God's revelation of himself in this way uh, to you. Uh, I think it will be a delight to your soul. I'll close there. Any any final comments or questions, Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
Well, and what he's saying, I think, and I think uh, Swain makes this case, and, I, and I've, I've, I've summarized his argument, but he, he makes the case, I think, very well, that when he says to baptize in the name, that he that name is equivalent to Kurios, or Yahweh. And then he defines Yahweh as Father, Son, and Spirit. We have one God in three persons. Um, we have unity and trinity simultaneously. So we do not worship three gods, uh, you know, there are those who accuse us of that, Some of the various cults, uh, even Muslims, uh, accuse Christians of being tritheists, that we have three gods, and we say, no, no, no. We have one singular name, one Yahweh, one covenant God, who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, um, that's three more Sunday school lessons. <laughs> well, we, we confess that Christ is, and we'll get to this more several chapters later in, in our confession with, with the doctrine of Christ himself. But what we find is, is the hypostatic union, which is easier to say than explain. But we, we have, a, we have a, a Savior who is both God and man without composition, without confusion, without mixture of, of his natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature, one person. They're not two persons of our mediator. They're not two persons of our, of our Savior. There's one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. That's the miracle of the incarnation is he took on a human nature. And so we've talked about this. One of the errors that we can fall into is thinking Christ has... What he means to have a human nature is he has a human body, but a divine soul. Therefore, he would only have one will. But what we, in order for him to be fully human, he needs to have both of the human parts. We are constituted of two primary parts, aren't we? A body and a soul. The, the New Testament language uses the language of the inner man and the outer man. Uh, the, there's a material part of us and an immaterial part of us that constitutes our humanity. Jesus would not be human if he did not have a human soul. If he had only a human body, he would not be fully human, would he? He has a human soul. And in that human soul is his human will. So the, there's one person of Christ, the God-man, and he has two wills. The will, his divine will, is, is inseparable from the Father, and the Spirit. There, there is no um, disunity within the Godhead. There, there is no uncertainty. In our own minds sometimes, we can even go this way and that way, and we, we find ourselves uh, laboring between door A and door B. It is not so in the Godhead. And so one of the implications of this, if we, if we see that, if we say that, that Jesus only had one will, and we say something like, we look at a passage that says, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus famously says, if it's possible, for, Father, for this cup to pass me by, let it be done, but not my will, but your will be done. 
What will is Jesus talking about there? What will is being contrasted? His human will. His will according to his humanity. He's not talking. There is no confusion. There is no disagreement within the Godhead. But if we say, and there is a popular Reformed teacher who said this recently, that it's speaking of his divine will. What you necessarily have to say, and here's an important implication, is that Jesus ceases to be omniscient. He ceases to be omnipotent while clothed in human flesh. Or we say, we have to say that that kind of comes and goes. But can, can God, as the second person of the Trinity, can God the Son, God of God, very God, light of light, from eternity, God, equal in his aseity, his self-existence, equal in his omniscience, equal in his omnipotence, can we say that God set a, sets aside his divine attributes for a time? If we do, we're in trouble. God does not set aside his divine attributes. So one of the implications of holding to one will is that you necessarily have to say that either temporarily or sporadically, Jesus sets aside his divine attributes. Does that make sense? And if he sets aside his divine attributes, he's not God. And if he is not God, he is not our Savior. If he is not our Savior, then we remain dead in our sins. So it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, you know, James Dolezal has been helpful to my, my thinking on this and, and thinking out some of these, these implications. And even one of my favorite hymns, it's a hymn that I wanted to, uh, want sung at my funeral, And Can It Be? But, but he pointed out, I never thought about this, there's, there's a phrase in there that's a problem. Speaking of Christ, he left his father's throne above. Now, is that true? It isn't true. It isn't accurate. Jesus cannot be anything other than omnipresent according to his divinity. So if we say that he sort of left his divinity and took on human flesh, well, he basically... He ceased to be God for a while, for approximately 33 years, until he was glorified and he became God again. No, he's, we, we see this, this God-man given to us, presented to us in the Scriptures. Fully God. Which means all of divinity. All of divine, God's divine attributes. Because God is simple, he can't be separated. He can't be divided into parts. So God... Jesus didn't, as, as the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh, doesn't set aside some or all of his divine attributes for a season or sporadically. He is, and always is, will always be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, God of God, truly God. So the implications are significant.
and, and that is a true statement according to his divinity, but not according to his humanity. Now, let's think back to the passage I looked at earlier in Philippians 2. You want to turn back there? Philippians 2. And let's just start in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, some have wrongly understood that, that emptying to be he set aside his divine nature. He set aside his divine attributes. That, we, that isn't true, and as you pointed out, he, he just spoke, and the winds and waves obeyed him. He could raise, raise the dead, heal the, the sick and the blind. He, he was always God. That, he never ceased for even a second to be God. And being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here's an important statement. Therefore, or for this reason, in light of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Kurios, is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. According to his humanity, his exaltation is now complete. According to his divinity... Truly, he was always Lord and sovereign. Now, according to his humanity, his full exaltation as the glorified God-man is complete. So th there is, it, it is the case, on the one hand, that this was, these things were always true. But it also is the case that there is something new. There is a new name given to the God-man, the mediator, who is both human and divine. And that human divine mediator has now been exalted and given the name of Lord. So when we think about that, it, it, it makes it much more profound with respect to the full measure of the, the salvation that we have received. Because now we have a perfected, exalted Lord whose perfection is imputed to us by faith. It is not only that, that our sins are cleansed, when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but all of that perfection is then imputed to us. Not his divinity, but all of the perfection of his human nature and the promise of our exaltation, not to the name of Lord, but to be glorified and, and, and seated with him face to face. Does that, does that help?
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things, in terms of just a general principle, is to ask yourself, when you see a statement made about Jesus, ask, is this statement about his human nature or his divine nature? Um, sometimes it's crystal clear. Other times you have to do some work to answer that question. Because it, it is, when we see him, you know, calming the wind and waves by, by just the word of his voice, obviously that's his divine nature. When he says, not my will, but yours, your will be done, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is this according to his human will or his divine will? And, and often it will become clearer to us uh, how to answer that question. All right. Well, let's, let's pray and, and give ourselves to the preparation of, of worship. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks that you've made yourself known, that you have made Christ known to us, and that in him we have the full image, the full measure, the full revelation of the Godhead. Father, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we understand more about what your word says to us about you. I pray that our our hearts would be lifted up and encouraged by the fellowship that you have made possible with us, with our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that your Spirit would help us not only to understand these things, but to make right use of them, and that is to give you worship and praise and adoration, because you're worthy of those things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.